As we end this series today, I have a, a very serious question to ask you right here up front. And I really need to know your, your feelings on this, what, what your take on this is. Very serious question. How do you feel? What is your take on touchdown celebrations in football? Like this, here. Like this, here. Go to that next picture there. How about that? It's a little extreme there. And I think we've got one more that's a, a bit more tame. Yeah, it's a bit more tame. What, what do you think? Should, should they be penalized for celebrating in football? What do you think? How many of you say yes, they should? Raise your hand by a show of hands. How many of you say no? How many of you really don't care? Yeah, the majority of you, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. Well, that's right. Who's, it depends on who's celebrating. Good answer. For those of y'all that watch football, you know that uh, in college, the, the, the college refs are a bit more strict on the celebrations than they are in the pros. Here, here's my take on it. I am for celebrating a bit if you have something worth celebrating. Now, if you're a Texas fan like me, you've got very little worth celebrating this year. Uh, and over the past few years, but, but if you have something worth celebrating, I say you can celebrate. Now, I don't like taunting the other team or, or celebrating in a prideful way, but if you make an incredible catch or a, or a fantastic run for a touchdown, especially if it's a game-winning touchdown, I'm for celebrating in that situation. Sometimes a team will celebrate after going ahead or for the win, and the, the refs will throw a flag. And, you know, I just think that's a bit unnecessary, just, just my personal thoughts. I'm for celebrating if there is something that happens worth celebrating. Believers, we have a reason for celebrating. Amen? We do. We have more of a reason to celebrate than anyone else. God has given us hope in an otherwise hopeless world. Though we are, are sinners living in a fallen world, though we have a, a death sentence set against us because of our sin, God loved us so much that He sent His Son to live for us the life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die because of our sin. And He raised Him back up for us so that we through faith alone, in Him alone, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God and have life forever, even though we die in His presence, in the presence of our Lord forever. I would say that's worth celebrating, wouldn't you? And what we find as we read God's Word is that God is for us celebrating in that way. He encourages it. When, when God provides salvation for His people, He delights in His people celebrating the salvation that He has provided. In fact, salvation calls for celebration. That's one of the main points this morning. It's what we're going to talk about today. If you have been saved, you should celebrate. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther 9. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through Esther chapter 10, verse 3 
today. We are finishing our series on Esther today. And as we finish out this book, we are going to talk about why God's people had a reason for celebrating in this story. And we're also going to talk more about why we have reason for celebrating today. And it comes at, an, at a great time, right? We're going to spend time focusing on, hopefully you will next week, what you're thankful for. And hopefully most of you will be able to celebrate with members of your family because of the hope you have in Jesus. That's my prayer for you. But before we get into this, let me one more time recap our story to bring everybody up to speed with where we are. So let me just do this just for a moment. We've been in the book of Esther this fall. And in this book, there is a king named Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, who rules over the Persian Empire. He's the most powerful, most impressive, influential, and affluent ruler on the planet at this time. And in this story, he is ruling from his palace in Susa, which is modern-day Iran, and he spends just a great deal of time in this story sitting up on his great throne like a god. In, in chapter 1 of the story, we learn that he gets upset with his wife because she disobeys one of his orders, so he gets rid of her. He removes Queen Vashti. Four years later, he holds this enormous competition. This is in Esther chapter 2. Hundreds of women are invited from all throughout the Persian Empire, and one of the women in the competition is a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. Her and her cousin who adopted her, Mordecai, are living in Susa. So they're Jews living away from God's people, away from his place of worship. So Esther is an orphan Jewish girl living in a foreign land. She is a very unlikely person, yet she is the one who is chosen to be queen. And her cousin, her father, Mordecai, is working at the king's gate. And we learn that he too has influence at this time because he's working at the king's gate and because he has ties to the queen because that's his daughter. And we see Mordecai show the kind of influence he has at the end of Esther chapter 2. While he's working at the king's gate, he discovers a plot by two of the king's eunuchs to take the king's Life. They want to assassinate the king. And so he, he hears about this. He lets Esther know. She lets the king know. And this plan is stopped. And these, these two eunuchs are arrested and put to death. Xerxes' life is spared. And this is recorded in the book of memorable deeds that Mordecai has done this. That, that he has used his influence to save the king's life. That comes, becomes important later on in our story. In Esther chapter 3, we're introduced to another character, a man by the name of Haman. And the king promotes Haman to a position that is the second most powerful position in the empire under him at this time. And we said, we've said that Haman was an Agagite. And the Agagites were longtime enemies of the Jews. Their, their feud goes all the way back to two brothers, twin brothers in the book of Genesis Jacob and Esau. So they did not like one another, and Haman was a wicked guy. He loved power and glory and public recognition, and he receives it from most everyone everywhere he goes, that is, except for Mordecai. 
Mordecai refuses to bow and, and show Haman the respect that the king says he deserves, that he believed that he deserved. So what does Haman do? He says, okay, Mordecai, you won't bow, you won't show me respect. Not only am I going to have you killed, but I'm going to have all your people killed along with you. And he manipulates King Xerxes to give him his signet ring, his stamp of approval. He has this decree signed, stamped, and delivered out all throughout the Persian Empire that said that the Jews are to be put to death, men, women, and children, on a certain day. Well, when this decree gets to Mordecai, Mordecai decides to do something about it. He influences Esther to do the same, and Esther decides to put her life on the line to go stand before the king without a formal invitation, which resulted in some losing their life. But she doesn't lose her life. She has shown mercy. She has granted access to the king. And the king says to Esther, ask of me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And we said earlier that Esther approaches the situation with wisdom. She doesn't show her cards right away, reveal Haman right away. She, she picks the opportune time. And then when the time is right, she reveals who Haman is and what his plan is to kill the Jews and reveals that she is a Jew. So Haman is plotting not only to kill the Jews, but to kill Esther's people. And Esther is sentenced to die along with them. The king doesn't like that because an attack against the queen is an attack against the king. So he has... Haman arrested and hung on gallows that Haman had built at his home for Mordecai. He was hoping to hang Mordecai on those gallows, but he ends up hanging from the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And we also learn in that chapter that Mordecai is honored. The king has a sleepless night. He discovers what, Haman, what Mordecai did back in Esther chapter 2. So instead of Mordecai being condemned to die, he is honored in, in the, in the uh, city of Susa. All of this happens in the first seven verses of Esther. In chapter 8 of Esther, we learn that Esther and Mordecai are given even more power. Esther is given the house of Haman. Mordecai is given the king's signet ring. And Esther gives Mordecai the house of Haman. So basically, there's a great reversal that takes place, right? Mordecai takes Haman's spot, and he becomes the most powerful man in the Persian Empire under Xerxes. <clears throat> we also learned over the past few weeks that this story is not over with the death of Haman because this wicked edict that Haman put into place was still in play, that the king signed off on, that the Jews were to be killed on this certain day throughout the empire. And in Esther chapter 8, we learn that Esther goes before the king once again. She pleads for the lives of her people, and the king tells Esther that there is nothing that can be done to change that decree or cancel that decree because at this time in this day, if a decree was sealed with the king's ring, it was set in stone. Not even Xerxes himself could change it. But he does, however, allow for something else to be decreed that could challenge that which had already been decreed. With me? And that's what Mordecai and Esther do. Mordecai comes up with the decree to counter the decree that Haman decreed and, and seal with the king's ring. It's the exact reversal of the first edict. 
Haman sent forth the decree saying that the non-Jews could kill Jews on a certain day, kill them all, men, women, and children, and plunder their goods. And so Mordecai sends a second decree that says the Jews have a right to defend themselves on that one day and plunder their enemies' goods. They have a right to defend themselves and their families. And we learned last week that's exactly what they do. In the first half of Esther 9, we learned that the Jews defend themselves against those supporters and followers of Haman who try to carry out this wicked edict. But this time, the Jews have the support of the Persian military, right? Because Mordecai is their boss. So they're not going to fight against the people of of Mordecai, but they fight for the Jewish people and the Jews defeat their enemies. We learn in Esther chapter 9 verse 16 that they killed over 75,000 of their enemies throughout the empire. 500 die in Susa in one day and on the following day because Esther requested another day, another 300 men are put to death in Susa. So, Because of God's providential work through two unlikely Jews, Esther and Mordecai, God's people are spared from annihilation. And what do they do in response? They party. They celebrate. Look at verses 17 through 19 of Esther chapter 9. On the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews are in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Remember the Jews in Susa, they fought an extra day, right? Against their enemies per Esther's request. Verse 19. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, a holy day, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now, the Jews have many days throughout the year in their calendar set aside that are holidays, days set apart for celebrating, which, be honest, Knowing what we know about their history, they should, right? God has done a great work throughout the history of the Jewish people, and this is one of those works, and this is one of those days. It's called Purim, and is a celebration, Purim is, of this great deliverance that God provided for his people throughout the Persian Empire through these two unlikely Jews. What we're going to do today is we're going to finish out this great book and we're going to talk about this this feast in celebration and talk about why it was established and what it was established for and we're going to talk about truths that we learn about this kind of celebration and why we have reason to celebrate today and why we as God's people should in fact celebrate. Here's the first point. Notice number one, point number one. This feast was established to celebrate the salvation of the Jews from their enemies. That's the first reason for the feast. We've talked about this a bit already, but look at verse 20 of Esther 9. 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. Verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. There's a reason right there. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So, after this first celebration. After this great victory, they celebrate. After that, Mordecai sent letters out to the Jews all throughout the empire that they should set this day aside as a holy day, as a holiday. Why? Verse 22, to remember these events, to remember this great work of salvation, to remember this day when the Jews got relief from their enemies, to remember this time as a time when sorrow was turned into gladness. Believers sound familiar? And mourning into a holiday. Mordecai is telling the Jewish people everywhere to celebrate this great work of salvation. He is telling them, your salvation is a cause for celebration. You were without hope. Now you have a reason for rejoicing. You were filled with sorrow. Now you're filled with gladness. You were sentenced to die and now you have life. Therefore, rejoice. Believers, same can be said of us. We have reason to rejoice. Amen? Yeah. That's why I'm a fan of holidays like Christmas and and Easter. There are some who believe that we shouldn't celebrate them because there's nothing in Scripture that says that we should, but we learn in Scripture that God delights in His people rejoicing in their salvation. And I believe setting aside time each year to celebrate Christ coming from heaven to earth to save in December, even though that may not be the time of year in which he came, and celebrating the work that he accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection in the spring is God-honoring. Those are not the only times that we're to celebrate, that we should set aside times to celebrate. Boy, this sermon falls at a good time, right? We're going to spend time next week thinking about how thankful we are i pray believers that that this be first in your minds the hope you have in jesus we're to gather around the table fellowship with 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 friends and 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 family eating good food enjoying good christian fellowship we did that last week right church and we should spend time with the believers bragging on god for the great work that he has done for us in the midst of non-believers so that we can be a witness for christ you'll notice in your study guide this week that i've asked you to take time over the holidays, over Thanksgiving and over Christmas and New Year's to spend time with Christian friends and family. And as you gather together around the table for a meal, designate some time to share about the great work that God has done in your life, how he has saved you and how he has 
growing you in godliness. Mordecai called for God's people to do this. And notice he calls for them to remember and celebrate this great event by feasting and by being benevolent. He says, make the days in this month a day of feasting and gladness. Send gifts of food to one another and give gifts to the poor. He tells them to show their appreciation of the salvation that has been provided for them by being gracious and loving to others. Remember, Esther and Mordecai had put their lives on the line. They risked life and limb for the sake of God's people. And many of the Jews fought to defend their their friends and family, and many of them were killed to, to save the Jewish race. So Mordecai is basically saying, because people have risked life and limb for you, see if this sounds familiar, believers, and many have died for your salvation, you respond to this great work by being kind and gracious and loving toward others, especially those who are poor and destitute. And believers, God calls for us to do the same. He calls for us to follow in the example of our great Savior who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. Because Christ put us first, believers, we are to put others first. Because he humbled himself, we're called to humble ourselves. Because he extended grace to us and was merciful and forgave us, we are to do the exact same thing. We, as a church, we provide opportunities all throughout the year, but especially during this time of year, for for you to respond to the great work that Christ has done in your life by serving others. Some have called in this week and asked about whether or not hope needs help on Thursday for Thanksgiving. And, and believe it or not, on Thursday, they're, they're jam-packed full. But guess what? We're on the list to serve lunch this week at Hope to those in need Monday through Wednesday. So you can do that this week. We've got a sign-up sheet right outside. You can apply immediately what we're talking about here by signing up before you leave today. I encourage you to do so. Starting in December, we're going to have our Christmas tree in the foyer. And we're going to have the Thrill of Hope food drive. Do it every year. Bring canned goods to put under the tree so that we can fill up the manna pantry for hope. Those are opportunities where you can apply what we're talking about here. There are needs overseas. Brent can tell you about the needs in Nigeria and in Nicaragua with the missionaries there and with Ebok. Get with him. He'd be glad to talk to you about about how you you can apply this as well. I urge you to do that if you have not, believers. In light of what Christ has done for you, you in turn love and serve others. The Jews had a reason to celebrate. They had been saved from their enemies, and we too have a reason to celebrate believers. We have been saved from sin and death. We have a reason to celebrate because God became a man, lived without sin, died for our sin, rose as our Savior, put His Holy Spirit in us, gave us a new nature. As a result of that, God now knows us, seeks us, serves us. He has prepared a place for us. That's a reason to throw a party right there, isn't it? It is. Notice another reason why 
the Jews celebrated and why this feast was established. Point number two, this feast was established to celebrate the great reversal that took place for God's people. We talked about this last week. Look at verses 23 through 26. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. So here we learn why it's called Purim. It's named after the term Pur. Remember we said that when, when Haman was trying to manipulate the king into signing this wicked edict to put all the Jews in the Persian Empire to death, in this one day we're told that he cast Pur. He cast lots to determine the best day, the most opportune time to act. He had lots cast before him day after day. And when the right number came up, he went to the king to make his case against the Jews about how they needed to be wiped out. They needed to be crushed and destroyed. And he shared with them, based upon the lots that had been cast, what day would be the best, most opportune time to act. The Jews celebrated this day and called it Purim to remember how God, through providence, used two unlikely Jews to change the king's mind about the Jews, reverse this wicked edict, kill their wicked enemies, and deliver God's people from annihilation. A great reversal took place on this day. This day that was set to be the worst day in the history of days for the Jews becomes one of the best days. A day that was going to be a day of great mourning. Remember, Mordecai was mourning this day in Esther chapter 4 becomes a day of great rejoicing and feasting. Believers, this story and this event that is recorded for us in the first part of Esther 9 and celebrated in the latter half of this chapter should remind us of the greater day of deliverance that took place hundreds of years after this at Calvary. A great reversal took place there for Christ and for us. That day is one of the most horrible and horrific and sad. It's the most horrific and horrible and sad days in the history of days in, in, in history. Yet it is also the greatest most glorious, most joyous of days in human history. A great reversal took place there. At the cross, though our king was put to death, through his death, our sin debt was paid. The sting of death was removed and God's righteousness was made available for condemned sinners like you and me. And Christ, though he died, was raised up three days later, to live forevermore. And because he lives, those of us who are trusting in him alone for salvation live even though we die in his presence forever. Though the Jews had reason to rejoice for this great reversal, believers, we have even more of a reason to rejoice 
because though God used Esther and, and Mordecai to provide temporary salvation in a physical way for the Jewish people, get this, Jesus provides eternal salvation in a spiritual way through his person and work for all who forsake their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Next point. This feast was established to be celebrated by all Jews in every generation. Look at verse 26. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Verse 30, letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So notice here that not only do Queen Esther and Mordecai push for the celebration of Purim, but so do the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. We're told Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and not just once, at the time appointed every year. So they did not want the events that we have recorded here in Esther 9 to be celebrated once and then be done with it. They wanted them remembered every year in every generation by every Jew in every clan, province, and city so that they would be remembered forever. So that no one would forget the great work that God did in delivering his people through Esther and Mordecai and the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. The Jews were to continue telling this story and, and celebrating this great work of deliverance so that they would not forget their great God and they still celebrate it today. And believers, we're called to do the same thing. Christ has called for us, his people, he has called for us to be witnesses of his person and work, to share his word, to be his witnesses, to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. He has called for us to do that. 
throughout all generations. He wants us to share of the great and glorious deeds of the Lord, to tell of His redeeming work to future generations in hopes that they will, listen parents, in turn share them with their children so that God's people would know Him and His ways for generations. We're to be leaving this kind of legacy. We need to be taking time to celebrate the great work that that God has done in our lives through Jesus. And we need to be sharing that message with our children and our grandchildren so that they would know him and in turn share him with their children and their grandchildren so that he would be known and trusted for generations. That's the type of legacy you want to leave your children and grandchildren. If not, you need to change what you desire most. It's more important than money in college, for college. It's more important than the family business. It's more important than than property that you want to pass on to your kids. It's more important than money in the bank. I pray you would see that. God did not want the generations to come to forget the saving work of God. And I pray you don't either, because it can be gone like that. It can change in a generation. Take this seriously, parents. Grandparents, take it seriously. Last point. The feast was established to remember two of God's great mediators and peacemakers. Though we started this study by pointing out the flaws in Esther and Mordecai, the Jews have nothing but good memories about these two heroes, and we have seen in this book that they end very, very well. And this feast, this feast of uh, this celebration of Purim is, is kept to remember the great boldness and faith of these two Jews and how God used them as great mediators and deliverers for God's people. And though this book is named for the Jewish queen Esther, Mordecai is remembered and praised for his contributions as well. Notice in chapter 10, in the last three verses of this book, we have a final word about Mordecai. Look at it with me. Verse 1 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Now you're probably wondering where that book is. We don't have We don't have the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. At times, books are referred to in the Bible that that we don't have today. That means it's it's a historical book, but it's not a divinely inspired book like the ones we have in Scripture. But that does tell us something because we're told in this book, we are told there is more on, on Mordecai and how he was shown favor by Ahasuerus and promoted to a position of great authority in the Persian Empire. So these events, they took place, right? They're historical events recorded in in these historical 
books. Verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Here we learn at the end of this story that though the wicked king Xerxes remained in power, continued to sit up on his great throne like a god. So did the godly Mordecai. He remained in power as well. And he is, is remembered by the Jews and by us and believers throughout history for being the great deliverer of God's people and the one who spoke peace and the one who brought peace to the Jewish people. And the word peace here is a very, very important word. It's the Hebrew word shalom. That word is a very, very important word. It means more than just calm. It means more than just the absence of trouble. It means more than being free from danger. It means being at complete peace, whole peace. It means to be in a right state. When it says that Mordecai spoke peace, when it says that Mordecai brought peace, it means he was used by God to set things right, to bring complete peace. Now, was the world perfect at this time? No, we just talked about wicked rulers were not done away with. King Xerxes continues to sit up on his throne. But Mordecai was God's man in God's appointed position of authority. And he spoke and he acted on behalf of God's people. And as a result of, of, of God using Mordecai, things were made right for God's people in this pagan Persian land. And again, this story should cause us believers to look ahead to our great mediator, our great peacemaker, God's great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was born, the angel said in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, shalom among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is our appointed deliverer, our perfect mediator, our great peacemaker. He came to make peace between us and God. You see, see, Scripture tells us that our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has set us against Him. And because we're set against God, His wrath and judgment is set against us. That's bad news. That's the worst of news. But we also have the best of news in God's Word. The good news that we learn from God's Word is that God has sent His Son for us to be what we could never be perfect inside and out. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. He also laid His life down for us. Christ was crushed by God for us so that God would not have to crush us. And He was raised so that we through faith alone in Christ alone can be forgiven of sin and made right with God. That's the gospel. Jesus was our perfect mediator. He was our perfect peacemaker. And we through faith alone in Him alone can come to know Him as our great Lord and Savior. And we can move through Jesus, through faith alone in Him alone, from being at odds with God to being at peace with Him. Are you at peace with God today? You can be at peace with Him this very day. 
by forsaking your sin, trusting in his son Jesus alone for your salvation. If you have never done that, I pray today be the day that you do. Let's pray.